you brought a Bible with you this morning, would you go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28. We'll get into that in just a minute. If you don't have a Bible, there's free Bibles in the back on that uh, brown table back there. Grab one on your way out this morning. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Change is hard, right? Change is hard. Adaptation to new things is hard. Change can be good. Change can be hard. Um, there's, there's changes afoot at New Hope. If you're new here, you came on a great weekend. You heard Jeff mention earlier that we're moving into a new building. Um, last night, part of the change of New Hope was um, transitioning from the Saturday night service and that we shared with those who attend the Saturday night service over the last year and then formalized it last night that last night was the last Saturday night service. And because we're moving into the new building. And when we launched as a church, four years old, um, by 2011, 2012, roughly, we launched a second service, which was the nine. And then we launched a third service four years later, which was the Saturday night service. And last year, we launched a fourth service. And that was a lot of work. And uh, that, that becomes very wearing. But moving into the new facility, we have a lot more space. And so we agreed that it would be the best thing for the church to come back together rather than being fractured into multiple services to bring it all together on Sunday morning. But change is hard. And so people who have known Saturday night service as their only service for that group of 120 roughly, um, that, that was saying farewell to something that they've known yet being here next weekend. So next weekend is our last weekend in this facility and it happens to be Communion Sunday. I thought that was pretty appropriate. And that group that attends Saturday night, they're going to be here competing with you for your seat, okay? Because <laughs> your seat is also their seat, right? And, and you're going to get to know New Hope. Matter of fact, on the very first Sunday in the new building, I'm going to say, New Hope, I want you to meet New Hope. Because you don't know each other, right? There's, there's multiple individuals who attend the church and call New Hope their church. So we're very excited about what's happening, but change is hard. Change means adapting. When, when God brings change your way, you have to adjust to what God's doing. And when God says move, you can't stay where you are and go with God at the same time. Let me flesh that out for you from Scripture. In Matthew 28, many of you are church people, so you know what Jesus is saying here. Go, he said, right? He said, go, therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, he says that right on the heels of saying, all authority is mine, and as a result, I want you to go. Now, if the followers of Jesus at that time said, you know what, I kind of like right where I'm at, there wouldn't have been making of more disciples to all the nations. But they took Jesus literally, they took him at his word, because you've got to go when God says move. So flesh this out with me. You'll see the statement on the screen. I learned this 20 years ago. It's not mine. I learned it from somebody else. When God says move, you cannot stay where you are and be used of God at the same time. Because God's on the move, and he wants you to move with him. It requires movement on your part. And Lori and I would tell you just from our personal life experience, and I think some of you have probably been there as well, many times it requires personal sacrifice. It requires some level of personal discomfort to some degree. If you're going to be in that place where God can and will use you. Well, we find a really interesting parallel in Acts 28 to Matthew 28. Jesus says, go. The followers of Jesus took him literally at his word. 
And so in Acts 28, you find the followers of Jesus on the move. Specifically, in this case, it's Dr. Luke and it's Paul. And Dr. Luke is writing the story in Acts chapter 28, and he's telling us about a scenario in which they're on the move. If you've read Acts chapter 27, you know where I'm going with this. We're not going to get into 27 today, but essentially, it's a shipwreck, literally. Paul has been a prisoner in Israel for two years, and he's been held by a king. The king sends him out to Rome. He's in chains. He's been assigned to a Roman guard and a centurion. And he's been put on a ship, a freighter, along with his entourage. Dr. Luke is among them. Well, while they're at sea, they encounter a storm. And for 14 terror-filled days, they're tossed to and fro to the degree that it breaks down the main mast. Their ship is destroyed. Yet no one's dying because God told Paul, no one's going to die if you just follow my plan. Stay with me. So they come to this little pinpoint in the middle of the Mediterranean called the island of Malta. It goes by the same name today, 58 miles off the coast of Sicily. That little island is where they find themselves after they've been adrift for 14 days, tossed by the storm, what looks like it's going to take them down, and there's 276 persons on board. Well, ultimately, the ship runs aground. Captain does what he can do to steer it in, but it's a rockety rocky promontory and they crash the ship and they have to jump overboard in order to save their lives. While the, the surf is pounding the ship and breaking it apart, they drag themselves up onto a beach and that's where we pick it up in Acts chapter 28 verse 1. When they had been brought safely through, then we found out the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold. They kindled a fire and received us all. Uh, I don't know about you, but if you've been in that place where I've been, there's cold and then there's wet cold. And wet cold's really bad, right? There's a certain chill to the bones that wet cold will bring to you. I think that's where hypothermia comes from because it just penetrates deep into your body. Well, these individuals make it through the breakers. They make it through the surf. They're survivors of a freighter that's run aground, and now they're huddling on a shore and there's a fire that's been built for them. It's the early morning hours. They're completely exhausted. Malta's not that big of an island. It's nine miles wide, 17 miles long, yet there's inhabitants there. And it says natives. And natives doesn't mean they're primitive. The Greek word that's used to describe them is barbarous. It's where we get the word barbarian. But don't think of the way that we use barbarian in the modern English language. Barbarian was used as a term to describe individuals who did not speak the Greek language. So anybody who didn't speak the language of the educated class, the ruling class, they were called barbarians or barbarous. So the natives are there, the barbarous people. They don't speak the language of the Greek people, but nonetheless, that's their home. And Dr. Luke records in verse 2, they showed us extraordinary kindness. Why would he record it that way? Well, not just because they built him a fire. There's a big fire. For 276 people to dry out and warm up, that's a huge bonfire. But here's why he wrote, they showed us extraordinary kindness, because sometimes victims of shipwrecks were taken captive. See, these people on this particular island, you'll see in the story as it unfolds that they worship not the one true God, but they worship the gods of Rome, small g, the gods of Greek mythology. 
And so the gods gave us something from the sea. It's ours. We get to keep it. So when shipwrecks took place and people landed on the shore of an island, the people of the island assumed, hey, that was given to us. They're our slaves. We'll put them in captivity. Well, instead of doing that, the people of this island, they showed extraordinary kindness. We came ashore wet. We were desperate to get ashore. We're drenched by the driving rain, chilled by the November winds. And they welcomed us with a fire. And we get to dry our soaking clothes. Oh, that's mercy to one degree. I want you to see God's mercy in a storm, not just the storm that they just survived, but a whole new level of a storm. You're going to see how Paul is allowed by God to be bitten by a viper. Go with me to verse 3. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out and because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. Now, my wife in this moment would be totally freaking out, right? She's deathly afraid of snakes. Just to see a dead snake on the side of the road will make her squirm. So to have a snake bite you and make a snack out of your hand totally would be freaking her out. Well, in Paul's case, he's got a viper and a poisonous viper, as you'll see in just a minute, dangling from his hand. Now, let's set that thought aside for a second. I love Paul's heart. Not because of the snake bite and what happens, but because of what he's doing. This is Paul the aged. You spent three years working through the book of Romans. It took Paul a long time to write the book of Romans. And then after we we saw a few weeks back, after he leaves Corinth, after writing the book of Romans, he goes to Israel and he's put in chains. He's arrested and he's been two years in prison. By this point, Paul is about 60 years of age. He refers to himself in Philemon as Paul the aged. Now, when you're in the first century and you make it to 60 years of age, you would be revered by people as Paul the aged because most people didn't live that long. It was very unusual. So he's been through scourgings. He's been through beatings. He's been through storms at sea. This guy writes about himself of all the things that he survived, and now you find him as a 60-year-old man doing a really menial task. It's a measure of his character. That's why I say I love his heart. He's performing the lowest task. There's 276 people on shore. There's a whole lot of people a lot younger than him. Paul is weathered. He's aged. And in the midst of all the survival efforts, he's not hesitating to serve because no task is too small for a follower of God. So he's out there gathering the sticks. He's picking up bundles. Brings him over to the fire, drops the sticks on the fire, and apparently one of the sticks is alive because it attaches itself to Paul. So he gathers this bundle and he throws the stick on the fire, and apparently the viper is shocked out of its hibernation of the November winds and the cold temperatures, and it uncoils. And this is not a gardener snake. Look at me on the screen. This is the only Greek word in your notes this morning. It comes from Dr. Luke, echidna. It's talking about a poisonous snake, an adder. As a physician, Dr. Luke certainly understood what deadly snakes look like. That's one degree of what's going on here. Look with me at this quote on the screen. It comes from Sir Ramsey from 1895. In the first century, a trained man of medicine was an authority about serpents, to which great respect was paid in ancient medicine. That's convincing, but the most convincing proof is actually the reaction of the islanders. They expect Paul is going to die. Go to the next verse. 
Verse 4, when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, undoubtedly this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Now, the perception of the islanders is really interesting. There's two things going on here. One's bigger than the other one. One's much, much bigger, actually. The first perception is because they're natives to the island, they certainly understand their own species. It's not a big island. There's not that much room they can roam on. They've lived there all their life. They know a poisonous snake when they see it, and they see it as venomous, and they expect Paul's going to die. That's one thing, but there's something much bigger going on here. The mere presence of the Roman guard has the natives on high alert. They're a Roman providence. They know they're under the, the boot of Caesar. They know why a centurion is present. This is a really serious criminal. So they've jumped to a conclusion. Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, verse 4. He's a serious criminal. So when they see the viper strike, it's a sure sign. Paul's a fugitive. That guy's a murderer. He's being wanted and hunted, and vengeance has finally caught up with him. So although he's been saved from the sea, justice will not allow him to live. Here's the bigger part of that component. These individuals on the island have a very clear sense of right and wrong. Here's where your study of the book of Romans is going to be of great benefit to you. They're demonstrating the work of the law written on their hearts. In other words, they have the moral code that thing that God places in every single person who's ever been created. Even natives on a remote island in the middle of the Mediterranean that's just a pinpoint on the map have a sense of justice. They don't worship the one true God, they worship all the gods of Rome, yet they know right and wrong. And every culture on this planet that's ever existed or that is here now has this same issue. We recognize right or wrong, it's universal. It's one aspect of how we grasp God. It's called general revelation. In this case, general revelation is revealing that there's a moral code written on their hearts. Let me reinforce what you studied in Romans. Look with me on the screen, Romans 2.14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. People have a sense of justice. They know right and wrong. Whether or not Paul's ship made it to that island and they never heard of Jesus, they would still stand before God accountable because they have the moral code written on their hearts. But in God's providence, He allows Paul and Luke to end up on this island. Because God reveals Himself in this way, everyone's without excuse. Now, we spent a lot of time in Romans on that, so we won't spend time this morning on it. Let's go on to verse 5. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. Luke doesn't mean the snake suffered no harm. The snake's crispy by now, right? He's, he's cooking. But Paul's got no panic. He's got no horror here. The snake didn't know that God wants Paul in Rome. Verse 6, but they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Notice small g. 
Now, we know, if you're a church person, you read the Bible, we know that Paul's under the protection of God. God wants Paul in Rome. He's got an assignment for him. But this group of islanders doesn't know that. They have no idea. So while they're waiting for the venom to take effect, the pendulum swings too far. He's a murderer. No, he's a god. He's a murderer. No, he's a god. Let's get off the pendulum. I will submit to you that there's a design in the storms that God brings into your life. I hope you believe that, that these things that come your way, that you didn't see coming and some that you do see coming, there's a design in those. They're not just random accidents that happen to you. Illnesses that you get, relationships that break up, maybe job loss, there's a design in those storms. What's the design? to awaken a capacity to reason with the truth of the gospel. And it may not just be about you, but about the people watching you, the people who are in your life, in your social circle, in your work environment. There's a design in the storms. God uses these situations to authenticate truth. Hold that thought on the shelf for a minute. Just follow the reasoning here. Paul is a prisoner, right? He's a prisoner of Rome. He's got a centurion assigned to him. There's guards around him. He's in chains. Anybody that can see him, they're coming to the conclusion, this guy's a wanted criminal. Now, picture yourself driving down I-69 or down 96 or 127, and and you see a work release van stop in front of you, and work release prisoners get out, and they've been given the assignment to clean the highway. You've seen that occasionally. I've seen it. Individuals get out in orange jumpsuits, they're, they're on work release because of good behavior, and they've been given a job, they're going to clean the median. Have you ever been compelled to stop your car, pull it off to the side of the highway, and, and walk up to one of those prisoners and begin having a theological conversation? Probably not. I never have been, and let alone the fact that law enforcement wouldn't like that too well if you did that on the side of the road. Now, go back to this story. Paul's a prisoner. What are the chances that anybody's going to want to have a theological conversation with him? He is not likely to gain much attention. He's just part of the 276. He comes straggling ashore. He's wet. He's lost everything. And on top of that, he's got a guard with him. Who's going to give this guy any attention? See, by this activity, God has allowed this viper bite on Paul. The attention is instantly fixed on him, and now the way is open for a free communication of the gospel. See, these people on the island, they have no knowledge whatsoever of the one true God, no knowledge of his capacity to rescue. So God brings storms, and he brings them into our life. He brings change, and he moves things in order to give opportunity to introduce people to God, people who are far from God, and that Paul seizes the opportunity is not even a question in my mind. You'll see as the story unfolds. Go with me to verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Pablius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. So he's the leading man of the island, according to Dr. Luke. He's protos, Greek word, for governor. He's the landowner. And he's an overseer, may not be a huge population on the island, I don't know, 1,000, 20,000 people, who knows, in the first century. But he's the leader, and apparently he's a really gracious host. 
He doesn't even know these people, and he's going to bring them in for three days until they can make some arrangements, even though his daddy is in bed with a fever. Go to the next verse. Eight. And it happened that the father of Pablius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. The recurrent fever that's being referred to here is a gastric fever. It's an intestinal disorder that's caused by the goat milk on the island of Malta. To this day in Europe, when somebody gets this, they still call it Malta fever. It was common in the first century. They didn't have pasteurization. They didn't have a way to treat this stuff without infections. And so people regularly got this dysentery and then came down with a serious fever. He's got Malta fever. So Paul comes on the scene, verse 8, he prays, lays hands on him, and heals him. And I want you to notice the order of what's being unfolded here. This is really incredibly significant. Did you notice what Paul does first? He prays. Now to the church, Paul's the guy who wrote Romans. He's Paul. He's Paul. Look at the things that he's done. But even who he is, he's no different than you and I. He puts things in order first. He prays, meaning the power to handle this situation, this particular storm, this rescue, it's not going to come from Paul. The power is from God. Paul's letting them know in a very explicit way, God has to answer this. If he doesn't, I have no power here. There's nothing that I can do. And so God graciously authenticates Paul's message and allows him to heal this man. There's a bigger thing going on. Do you see what's happening? The people of this island are getting to know God from event after event after event. They're beginning to learn of the God of wonders because of storms. It takes time. But it's unfolding. There's a plan unfolding here. God's allowing these storms to demonstrate who He is, and He expects His followers to do likewise, to respond accordingly, to move because He's on the move. Let's go to the next verse, verse 9. After this, it happened that the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to Him and getting cured. Now, that's not surprising. The news is spreading around the island like wildfire, so the neighborhoods are emptying out and they're starting to flood in. You know enough about Paul. You can answer this question. You know about Dr. Luke. You know about the entourage that travels with him. Do you think as these people are coming to see them that maybe they talked about Jesus? What do you think the chances are that there's a response to the gospel? Historians tell us from this moment in time, from this very moment in the first century, is when the church was established on the island of Malta, the most western-reaching church first established as a Christian-based operation, and the very first pastor of the first church on the island of Malta was a man by the name of Pablius, the governor of the island who watched his dad get healed by Paul. See, every time God allows miracles, the purpose of the miracles is always, always, always to authenticate God's message. That's why there's the miracles written in the Bible that are written. It's always about authenticating God's message. 
We know that it was authenticated because of verse 10. Watch this. They also honored us with many marks of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. It looks to me, as I read this as a student of history, like there's been an awakening on Malta. There's a huge outpouring, and apparently some people have received Jesus. They've spent three months on Malta at this point. It's wintertime. They came ashore with nothing. Now, when you step onto a freighter, onto a cargo ship, a transport ship of any time in the first century, there's no in-flight service, if you will. There's nobody waiting to take care of you, nobody coming down the aisle saying, would you like a Coke or a Diet Coke? Whatever you brought on ship with you, that was your provision. You fed yourself, in other words. Nobody's waiting to take care of you. Well, when Dr. Luke writes, they supplied us with all that we needed, he's talking about that group, his entourage, Paul and himself and the others that are traveling. And these people are supporting them with many marks of respect. They're honoring them. Why? Because they're starting to look like Jesus. They're blessing people whom they had no relationship with. All of a sudden, they have a relationship with. Now, three months on Malta, winter's over, the sea travel begins, and they're finally able to leave. And Julius the centurion arranges transport for his passengers, for his prisoners and his own guards on this Alexandrian ship, which is just another ship in the imperial fleet. Caesar owns lots of ships. This is a big grain ship. But we're told this little detail from Dr. Luke. It's the twin brothers for its figurehead, which means it's got Castor and Pollux carved into the main front which are the two sons of Zeus because they worship the small gods of Roman mythology, the gods who oversaw men who made their living at sea. Dr. Luke included that for a detail. If you want to know the reason for it, see me after the service, I'll fill you in. And there's a good reason for that. So they're set sail and they're headed for Italy now. Verse 12, after we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Patoli. So after this really short visit, they're arriving at Regium. It's the southern tip of Italy. The final leg of the journey is going to take them 210 miles up the coast of Italy. They get to Patoli, which is a port city. Sailing's really good. It's spring weather. They got a favorable wind. This port that they're going to is located near modern Naples and Pompeii. At that time, it was a city of 100,000 people. It's a pretty big city today. It's still the biggest port on the coast of Italy on the western side. In that city, apparently, there's believers in Jesus that are already there. Maybe they've even read Romans at this point. We don't know. Verse 14, there we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days and thus we came to Rome. That is intensely understated. I mean, after all these years, all this labor, this grueling journey, Dr. Luke simply says, we came to Rome. It's been a long, grueling time, a huge route. But word on the street is, Paul's coming. We don't know how they know, but they know, verse 15, and the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius, and the three ends to meet us, and when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. I, I want you to dwell with that last statement for just a minute. Tharsos is the Greek word for boldness. 
That's the word that Dr. Luke uses here when they took courage. He took tharsos, boldness. A road to Rome on foot takes five days. That's 130 miles from where they put in at the port city. They're on the Appian Way. As they make their way up the Appian Way, 43 miles south of Rome, they're going to come to the market of Appius. Apparently from there, people got news already that Paul was coming, and they begin coming out of the market of Appius. And then at the three taverns, they hear that Paul's coming, and that church begins heading down the Appian Way, and they meet with Paul, and it takes a while for the people from Rome, from the city, from the capital, to hear that he's coming, and they get out on the Appian Way, and they start coming south. And Paul has to stop when he sees the church coming toward him. You're the people I wrote to. You're the, you're the Romans. You received the letter. These are the people who are believers in Jesus Christ who have left their job for the day or whatever pound of time it took to come down and meet him, and he is deeply moved. You need to read this with the emotion that Dr. Luke writes this with. He's deeply moved by their love. And Paul stops and he thanks God for what God has done in his life. It may occur to you that Paul is the guy who last needs more courage. It's like, he's Paul. Look how bold he is. And yet he needs more because he's no different than you and I. He's endured shipwrecks, beatings, endless legal proceedings, years in jail. And now he encounters the body of Christ and he takes courage. And what's the trigger for it? Fellow believers, see New Hope, we really do need each other, don't we? We really need each other, brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, Paul is about to stand before Nero. He's going to go before Caesar. That hasn't even happened yet. He draws the boldness because the believers in Christ who understand who Jesus is are there to encourage him. That's why we do this. This is why we do church. It's not about just moving into a bright, new, shiny building. It's about doing life together. It's about the services and people who attend the services getting to know each other. So we strengthen each other. We encourage each other. We walk through life together. The people in this auditorium right now that many of you don't know who are going through incredible life struggles, we've got to get to know each other because they need courage just like Paul needs courage. It ends with verse 16 today. The story doesn't end there. You can read it later yourself, but we're going to end with verse 16. It says, when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. That soldier is chained to Paul's wrist. It appears, according to the story, he's chained to his wrist for the next two years. He's still under custody, but he's granted some degree of liberty. He can move around. He can freely talk about Jesus. He's free to bear witness. It's a witness, but it's a witness in chains, as you read in verse 28. These scenarios that you've watched unfold this morning, these hardships, these storms that he's gone through, they are continually allowed by God. I don't know what you're going through right now. God not only knows it, God allows it. God allows us to go through these circumstances all because God says, I'm on the move. In order to join him in his work, you've got to be on the move with him in order to make him more known. 
So every single occurrence, no matter how adverse it might be to your senses, God says, I'm at work both for the present good and for the eternal good. Let me take you back to Romans again. Look with me on the screen. See, Romans is just so valuable. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. There's a chance that some people are going to read that over the course of the weekend who are going through incredible health struggles. I I know some of those. Or they've had busted relationships. Or there's been job loss. And they read a verse like that and say, really, Mark? Because it doesn't feel like all things are working together for my good right now. And in that, we misread what's going on in that verse. Read it very cautiously and slowly. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. It doesn't mean that it's always for your immediate good, but he's at work accomplishing his purposes. He sets up the stage for that reason. Our responsibility is to decide how are we going to respond to those circumstances, even in the hard things. God's with you. I know that because he said so, and God can't lie. Let's go back to Matthew 28, 19 to end this. Go to the very beginning of what Jesus said when we started a half hour ago. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you. Jesus certainly knew where they were going. He knew what was ahead of them. I am with you always, even until you cross eternity's shore and you step over into heaven. I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So when you go, when you move, when you adapt, you're not going alone. God's with you. So in the midst of this walk, God's bringing opportunities to join him in his work. Our responsibility is to decide how are we going to respond to that. So I'm, I'm challenging you, New Hope. I don't know what lays ahead of you this afternoon or tomorrow morning. When you're presented with a storm, your task is going to be to determine how will you respond. And hear this, I'm going to say it twice. How you respond determines the significance of what God will do through your life. How you respond determines the significance of what God will do through your life. He invites you to join him in his work. The disciples could have said no. Paul could have said no. I'm not into that. God says, I want to use you. Invariably, somebody hearing this this weekend is going to say, yeah, right, Mark. Like, God would ever use me. As you study the Bible, remember this. These individuals that you read about... Paul and Luke, for instance, this morning, they're on a growth curve, just like you and I are. They didn't instantly become individuals of renown. It took a long time. God's working through them. They're learning more. They're increasing in their capacity. They're increasing in their understanding. But here's the difference between them and most people. This is why my prayer for New Hope is that we would be bold, because we need to be bold in being intentional. These individuals are intentional. They're willing. They're willing to be intentional towards the activity of God in their life. Rather than treating the bad health report or the job loss 
or the busted relationship as just something that happened to me. Look at it as God's opportunity to make Jesus more known. How do I expand the glory of God in my community? It's going to seem like a simple prayer, but that's the way I'm going to pray for us this morning, that God would use the opportunities in your life this week and in the next two weeks and next month as ways to deliberately, intentionally make God more known to your social circle. Would you join me in that prayer? Father, we come before you humbly and submitted, asking that you would be willing to use us. I pray specifically corporately and personally for every individual in this room and for the church New Hope as a corporation, God, that we would as a body of Christ and as individuals who make up that body, that we would be known about as individuals who are intentional in making Jesus known in this community. That's why you sent us out. That's why you're moving us. God, I know it's not just about the new building. It's not just about more space. It's about you getting glory. So we pray that you would use us in that way. Whatever might come our way, let that be true of us this afternoon, throughout the rest of this week, throughout the rest of this year. God, help us to be deliberate. We pray for that. We pray for that because you're not willing that any would perish. You want everybody to know about Jesus. You want everybody to respond in faith. So God, that you would use us that way. It would be our heart's desire, and so we ask that that would be true. Send us out now with your blessing, Father. We pray for that in the matchless name of the one who redeemed us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.